0: Uh, oh look, you see. He? Oh, it's your this agent. Is this is my agent. Shall this could be a big it?
1: new job. Yeah, sure. Answer it.
0: Hi. <laughs> Hi, I'm good, thanks.
1: This could be a good moment. I'm it doing could be witnessing. Do
0: do? I'm doing. I'm doing a podcast with David Tennant, and we thought it'd be funny to see if anyone rings.
1: Yeah. Is it Olive? This is Lindy. Oh, that's Lindy. Lindy, is it, is it hello.
0: David says hello. Is it? Oh, Oh, I can't wait to find it. Is it good or bad, Lindy? Good. Okay. Brilliant. Good. I'm qualified qualified. good, I think. Love you. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, Lindy. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) No. Here we go. That's a lovely little moment
1: for the
2: listeners.
1: (laughs) (laughs) David Tennant does a podcast with
2: Michael Sheen, Gordon Brown,
3: Jodie Whittaker, Samantha V, Catherine Tate.
2: James Corden. Olivia
3: Colman. We'll be Goldberg.
2: Hello, everyone.
3: And
1: hello, Georgia. Hello, David. Welcome. Welcome to an extra special, extra edition of the podcast. we got so many bits of interviews that we just didn't have time to put in the original programmes. So it seemed a waste, didn't you mm, think? It did, yeah. Um, so here's a little taste of some of the bits that you missed out on first time around. The extra special offcuts. Uh, a wee selection box from the series. To start off, here's Michael Sheen being excitable. You're a man of enthusiasms. I'd <laughs> yeah, I get carried away most yeah, that, yeah, which is lovely. And it's lovely that you, you clearly have enjoyed these moments. You've also been able to pursue your enthusiasms, haven't you? I'm thinking, for instance, someone like Stephen King. You're a massive fan of Stephen King. Mm. And through sort of having a bit of status within one industry, you can kind of chase down these people that you... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, War of the Worlds was uh, a big yeah. part, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, which
2: you have right. just recently recorded, right? That's right, yeah, we did. So, Jeff, when I was about, I would say, probably about 12, 13, uh, my cousin Hugh, well, I say cousin, he's one of those people who's not really a cousin. He, but, right, you know, yes, sure, like, sure, know, sure. Uh, he uh He, my mum and dad were, you know, going out with his mum and dad that night, and so he had to kind of look after me for the night or whatever, and... Uh, and he was he was probably about 16 17 at the time and he played me well he did a few things he gave me lord of the rings the book right um and he played me various albums one of uh, jerry rafferty album ever since then jerry rafferty night owl okay. Baker street all that kind of stuff uh, very i i loved jerry rafferty ever since then um and he also played uh, Rush. I think he played me a Rush album, which has wow. also become a favorite of mine. And he um, and he played Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds double yeah. album. And it terrified me and had a massive effect on me. And right. ever since then, I've been slightly obsessed with that right. album. And then uh, a few years ago, I was asked to guest edit the Today program for Radio 4, where you get to kind of suggest things to do stories on. Right. And so one of them I said was, I'd like to... Do something about War of the Worlds, and uh, so I interviewed David Essex and Jeff Wayne. But it was a remote interview; they weren't in the studio with me. They were like somewhere else, and but we talked over the mic. Yes, um, and so that must have alerted. Was there an
1: anniversary or something, or did you just no. shoehorn this into a new? I was program, just like, what,
2: what are the things I'm interested in? I like that. Yeah, right. so that was very much so like a case of use whatever I've got. Yeah, to be able to, you know follow these things that I'm enthusiastic about. Uh and so uh so I did that and I I suppose that meant that Jeff Wayne knew that I was into War of the Worlds. Sure. So then a few years on again, fairly recently about a year ago, I get a message from my agent, uh, Jeff Wayne's been in touch. Wondering if you'd be interested in doing a new version of War of the Worlds. I
4: was like, Yes!
2: <laughs> no questions asked. Um and so uh so I got to go to Jeff Wayne's studio <laughs> Uh, outside of London uh, and uh, his home studio and like look at all the photographs of him and Burton when they did it originally and all the War of the World's memorabilia. Oh, it was... It was David, it was on Blackboard. <laughs> it was one of the greatest moments of my life. Uh, I, and I got completely overwhelmed by it. And we ended up doing a kind of, you know, behind the scenes bit of, you know, B-roll footage. There was a like, right. camera there yeah. and and they sort of interviewed us. And... <laughs> I'm sitting there with Jeff Wayne talking about how important this album has been to me. Else, and I just started openly weeping. Oh, that's lovely <laughs> though. It was so embarrassing. Poor Jeff didn't quite know what I'm to do. sure he was delighted. Oh, God. And at one point he, it, it, they were doing a thing where he's got a piano in his studio, you know, and they were interviewing him and he did the thing where he went, to, he was talking about, you know, he said, what was, what was the first bit of melody that came to you when you first came up with the idea? And he was like, well, it was this," and he starts playing the piano and I, Almost came, I have to say. <laughs> I Jeff Wayne is there playing the War right. of the Worlds theme tune on a piano in front of me. Oh. I mean these are the things that yeah, make it all well, worthwhile, aren't of they? Of course.
1: A lot of the guests on the show, Georgia, yeah. have talked about uh, juggling their public life with their home life.
0: Well it's not easy.
1: It's not. Here's Olivia Coleman again. And following that, James Corden. So what do you have ambitions left? Or is ambition a dirty word?
0: No, I think ambition. It took me a long time to admit that I had ambition, I think. Mm. And
1: did it feel like did you have to admit it wasn't a dirty word to
0: yourself? Yeah. Um I think I I realize that I am ambitious. Because because I love work mm. and um I don't I want to keep working, so mm. there's got to be some ambition in there. Yeah. I'd love to do a duty, I'd love to work into my eighties. You know, the lovely thing about what we do is hopefully, I mean, if they cast someone in their eight or they've written a part for someone in their 80s, they can't cast someone in their 20s to mm. play it. Yeah. <laughs> well, they could, but, um, you know, we with HD.
1: Yeah.
0: It's not so easy. Yeah. Um, I'd, and also, I think I'm a better mummy because I feel artistically and creatively fulfilled.
4: Right. And I, I think anybody who has children would, would tell you how... Of course, it, it's it's life changing and all those things. But if if your life to that point, if you've been an actor or you know whatever I am, um, you uh, you've spent a lot of time only really thinking about yourself and your career, yeah. in quotation marks, yeah. and, and how, and how, how important, important it is,
5: <laughs> and how,
4: well, is this right? Will I be perceived in the right way? Yeah. Well, well, and then you just go, none of this matters. None of this matters. These three small children that I'm you know, looking at There's over great your shoulder, these people, they don't care how much money we've got. They don't care what I do. They only care that I'm around, mm-hmm. that I'm there, and when I'm, when I am there, that I'm present, and that that they and that's the thing that they'll learn from and that's all i ever try to remind myself of and i and i get it wrong 28 times a day to be clear like i'm not i get it wrong all the time but the more you just try and like only be present now then you're. if you're just trying to be the best version of yourself, that's what this job's taught me more than anything else, actually, is that all that matters is this moment now. So at this moment now, I'm really not thinking about the rest of the day. Mm. I'm not thinking about the guests who are on the show tonight. I'm certainly not thinking about anything tomorrow. All I'm thinking about is how can I give David the, 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 the best thing that he might want from this moment now? And then you're going to leave and then we're going to have a creative meeting and I go, well, what is the best version of this? And if you can transport that from your work to your home, to your life where I get in and I go, well, what does my wife need from me right now? She certainly doesn't need me talking about how tired I am from the show Mm. or my children don't need me to be on my phone. Mm. They just need me to be there and be present. It's weird. When Oasis released that album, Be Here Now. I remember I was so young at the time, I thought it was a terrible album title. I now think it might be the best album title of all time. <laughs> I do, just to be here now. That's all that matters. Like, cause if you're doing that, if you're always just trying your best, your life will be mm. it'll be a it'll be a picnic, you know? They must like that you're in trolls. They love that I'm in trolls. Yeah. They like that I'm Peter Rabbit. Sure, of course. Uh, nothing's ever, nothing will ever really stump the Gruffalo, I don't think. Uh-huh. But, uh, cause that's just, you know, a yeah. very, I think, yeah, that, that's lovely. And I think my youngest daughter's about to discover that quite nice. soon. So, yeah, they love all those things. Peter Rabbit is a, is a, is a real fun one at school. Yeah. You know, right. Because, uh, cause kids just go, are you Peter Rabbit? Yeah. And, I, and he's got a slightly higher voice than me. That right. So I go, come on, look out, look out, look out, hero. And they just think, oh my God. <laughs> Mind blowing. that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Are they growing up with American accents? Well, my son, who's seven, has a British accent when he talks to us and an American accent with his oh. friends at school. So like... He's a survivor. Yeah, well, he'll... well Because when you're at school, you'll just do anything to fit in. Of course. But you know what I mean? The wrong pair of shoes at my school was like, that was an awful week. Yeah. When your mum chose brogues, Oh, yeah. And everyone else was wearing kickers. Yeah. Like, you know, it was terrible. And and so he'll be like, Dad, uh, can I go in the garden? And you go, yeah, yeah, of course. And then he'll have a friend around and he'll go like, Berkeley, come on, let's go in the yard. And I look at him like... Get back
1: here! So he's right bilingual.
4: Now. Yeah, it's Not and just- he does think of it as a second language.
5: Because
4: mm. I, I explained this to him once. We were with we were we were somewhere, and I was explaining to him that, that the person who was talking to us had sort of he said, "Oh, they said a, a sentence like this." and I said, "Well, that's because their Spanish is their first language. So actually, their English is way better." my Spanish or your Spanish. And actually it's amazing. And I said, you know, you're growing up, you're learning Spanish and Spanish will be your second language. You'll never probably be as good at it as you are at English. And he said, no, no, American will be my second language. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? He said, dad, they don't even know what a pavement is. (laughs) <laughs> but, but my youngest daughter doesn't speak yet and my other daughter she moved here when she was 12 weeks old right and she's just like oh my god really oh my god she woke up at 4 o'clock this morning and she said dad I can't sleep <laughs> so, yeah. But it's kind of glorious but then when we go home if we go home for any longer than two weeks it all just slots back in
1: yeah you know? here's the amazing Catherine Tate oh I love her yeah slightly struggling with being famous and her mum have you met her, Mum?
6: I haven't. Oh. It's an extraordinary thing. Suddenly, people knowing who you are. Mm. Um, sort of didn't really. Well, I I, th- I think you have to be. I was aware that that was inevitable. Mm. You know, and it's not a thing you can ever complain about. No. Nope. Because it's a it's a mark of people liking what you do, or certainly being aware of what you do. Um, it it's 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 hard, and my head was spinning, but it's. It's also then what I then have is I have a mother who thinks it's marvelous that people recognize me. Okay. So my mum will really go out of her way to make sure people do recognize <laughs> me. And that I'm always at odds at that because I'm, my mum cannot understand why I would not want people to know that I'm there. Right. Do you know what I mean? That I'm in Waitrose. And I always, you know, I, I, I like my work to be out there and I put my work out there and, I, and I'll and i do everything for my work to be seen and I hope people like it. I don't put myself out there. Mm. That's just not my thing. I have stopped going out with my mum to crowded places <laughs> because my mum will deliberately go to a different aisle in Waitrose where I am and then shout, Catherine! <laughs> I mean, so people are just... People are just alerted anyway at someone shouting the name. Um, I mean, yeah, my mum feels like my mum genuinely like feels like I've got a duty to stop and speak to everyone, regardless of whether they've heard of me or in any way want me to speak to them. <laughs> and I, I'm often saying to my mum, they don't care. They don't care. They just don't care." But um, and I'm often in. Um, not a week goes by where I will get in a cab I'll get in a cab, and the cab driver will go. I had your mum in the back last week.
1: No. Oh
6: yeah. Oh, my mum will tell anyone. I mean, in the in the most roundabout way that that she that she's related, which to is her. lovely. To of course, see her it's lovely. Exhibit
1: her pride in of that way. Of course
6: it is. But I get phone calls, and she'll have a plumber in her house who she's gone. Do you want to speak to my daughter? I mean, Amazing. Properly, like. Hi, hi! Do you know, I mean she passes the phone to people? Do your funny voices for do, them? Do do them? Do them.
1: John Ham, lovely voice. Yeah, great lovely voice. Yeah, here he is, just a little disgruntled with the modern world.
5: So, like, I learned, I learned uh, a long time ago from a, from one of my acting teachers. Actually, early on, was was one of the big things is just like just be present. If you're watching something through a screen. This was before we had screens this was this was back in the old days when people would bring you know video cameras those those handheld mm. uh they were small, but they were still like you know it was the express purpose was to take video yeah like then you're not watching what you were meant to watch like, you're yeah. not experiencing yeah. it you're you're recording it for a later date that you're never going to watch yeah uh so what's the point? Shoot you know off. just sit there and enjoy it and then remember that you enjoyed it. Uh, instead of, it's it's the equivalent of like buying a concert T-shirt and not going to the concert. Yeah, you know, I went I went and saw Radiohead in, in Wembley in in 1998. Like, yeah. Well, how was the show? I don't remember. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but I, <was laughs> I got there. the T-shirt.
5: Yeah. And is, are you not on Twitter and, mm-hmm. and all the? Is that because you don't quite trust yourself to to? Uh... No, uh, in fact, there's been many times I wish I could cor- uh, correct the record on several. Things that have been written or said about me, but I, what it ends up doing is just extending the cycle of whatever nonsense is being mm. uh, perpetrated. So it's, it's just easier, I think, in the long run to just opt out and mm. say, like, I'd rather not. Yeah. It's no comment is better than any comment in this day mm. and age. It just, it just doesn't, no one cares. No one really listens. Again, it's just, it's just for a sensationalistic, mm. you know. Rattling the can yeah. in some more in some way, and I don't care it's just, it's meaningless to me I'd rather have a converse. I'd rather sit here and talk to you for yeah. f- four hours than than tweet off something stupid yeah or or we all know the president's a lunatic, so yeah. who care uh, who how many people saying it online does it take mm. it does it doesn't move the needle and and I think the backlash against it makes it even worse mm. the culture the culture of outrage is very sure and, and 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 when you're outraged all the time it's like being outraged none of the time mm. there has to be a a time of like happiness for the for the outrage to be real mm. but when everybody's outraged at everything there's just well, then what's the point point? and do you think because you 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 became sort of famous
1: public property i guess just as that was all yeah, percolating. Off, wasn't it? So did did that did you make a conscious decision I, I really
5: did. Away? Uh a lot of a lot of the people Mad Men came Mad Men started in two thousand we, we shot the pilot in two thousand five, it aired in two thousand six, and Twitter started in two thousand seven. Right. And the iPhone came out in two thousand seven. Right. And Instagram came out in two thousand ten or eleven. Um Facebook was already out, I think. But so it was right at the cusp of that that thing. Had I been, had the show come out a few years later, I probably would have been asked by the powers that be to be on a social media platform to promote the show, which, which actually doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it doesn't really move the needle. People think it does because, because of the numbers involved. Oh my God, God, Kardashian has 82 million followers. So therefore it must be a thing. Yeah. And then you realize like twenty percent of those are fake, and the other twenty percent of those just want to see her in a bikini, and another twenty percent of those, you know, it, it, it are are only interested in her brand or her lifestyle. Yeah. So you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really do anything, yeah. um, in any real way. But people are able to monetize it for now hmm. because they think you know Emily Ratajkowski can say, oh, I like this shampoo, and and the shampoo will go through the roof because. She's on Instagram and wears bikinis and looks amazing. Like Mm -hmm. you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a business model at this point. Mm. Uh, And I talk to a lot of young actors. Um, They they I'm kind of like the for my university and for my high school. Anybody that that graduates, they they get sent to me basically when they come out to L. A. It's like all right, let's go get a cup of coffee. Let me tell you like let me tell you what to do. Like get a job, (laughs) find a thing, get in a class. Like do this, do this, do this. Yeah. Um, but they're all kind of like, what do I do about social media? And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm at a place where I'm fortunate enough to not have to worry about it. But those kids, like, it's it's a it's a thing now when you go into an audition at a certain level. They're like, how many, what's your social media profile? Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll you'll have to show them to the casting director. And if you don't have one, they're kind of like, can't do anything with you. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, I'm not here to be self-promoting on social media. I'm here to, like, read the copy and see if you like what I do with it. But that's secondary. Do you think that's a moment in time, though? Because it, as you see, I say, do. I think I think, people I think realize it doesn't really do. Anything. I think people. The thing about all of this stuff, including the internet as a as a as a broadband, you know, kind of constant in our lives, is that it's all it's all technology that is. In its infancy, essentially, mm. especially when you look at social media and smartphones and uh, the constant, you know. Uh, constant uh, connection that we have, which is kind of a weird oxymoron because nobody's really connected, but we're online all the time. All of that technology is in its infancy, and yet it's it's spread almost globally. So we haven't really kind of caught up to it. It's like those little bird scooters. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you mm-hmm. seen those things around? It's like a little rental scooter. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. You've seen them, right? I know. Yeah, they're a nuisance. Yeah. Everyone's getting in accidents and falling off of them and breaking their arms, and people are getting really hurt. And kids are using them; they shouldn't. People should wear helmets, but they won't. But because they came out so fast and and penetrated the culture so quickly and became almost ubiquitous and overnight, there's no laws against. Like there's no there's no way to legislate them. The the, the, the police and everybody are kind of wrong footed because they're just like, well, what do we do? Are they motor vehicles? Are they bikes? What what are they? Are you allowed to ride them on sidewalks? Should you only be right? Riding... We don't know because we don't have any, the, the The legislative capacity is is too slow to catch up to how fast this technology has disseminated into the culture. Same thing with social media. Mm. Nobody knows what to do with it. Mm. When you talk about people getting their lives you know kind of hacked by third-party players that are nefarious or whatever and their personal photographs splashed up for everyone to see and laugh at and point at and judge and ridicule and everything and you go well that's not fair Mm. and then the argument is well you shouldn't you shouldn't take a picture if you don't want it to be seen by everyone it's like well that's not true at all like that doesn't make sense at all um so there's a lot of like stuff that I don't think we've caught up to Mm. as a society on on what's right and what's wrong. But I think, I think it will correct. I think it definitely will.
7: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
6: Um, Have you got any Jodie Whittaker? Oh,
1: yes, I do. Here she is talking about how she accidentally convinced Chris Chibnall, the writer of Doctor Who, that she was right for the role.
3: So me and one of my best mates, Rachel Dunard, um, who's from Sheffield, that's why I can say it in a northern, very kind of strange northern accent, but she um, wrote, directed and edited... A film that we like, I exec and that we made. But before we made it, we made a short film of it called Emotional Fuse Box. The film was Adult Life Skills, the, the short was Emotional Fuse Box to, to kind of go well, basically for financing, she'd never directed anything. So we needed, they needed to see she could do it. Yeah. And it was never meant to be a short to develop into a feature. The feature script was already there. So the, so even before um, the short got nominated for a after. Oh, so well done! Yeah, well done for getting that in. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, that we were already shooting the feature. I shot it right. literally four weeks after we finished season two of yeah. Broadchurch. I so walked into that. So, but I on a train was show. We went. Did you go to Harrogate to do that thing with the book? No, I never no no. Went why, uh, me and yeah, what, me what and was that
1: there. like a Broadchurch book? It launch. was a book or yeah. something.
3: Yeah, so we we yeah, it was the Broadchurch book launch, but yeah. it was in Harrogate. We were on a train journey back, and obviously, I'm so shy and quiet, I don't speak. She sure. had to listen to me for the entire time, and not only that, I made him watch this shot and I like watched him watch it. Right. <laughs> 10 minutes. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was like 25 minutes. I was like, just watch that. We've got a couple of hours.
1: Did you stare at him as he watched it? I watched it so he felt really sure relaxed. It, yeah. but he Literally said
3: laughed it. in all the right places. Yeah. No way. <laughs> um, but then afterwards, he said in an interview to the New York Times, no less, oh. that that, um, that was actually the first connection. He'd thought, oh, that energy oh, is within the playfulness. I was essentially playing a grumpy teenager. I was right. thirty in it, right? But I was playing the grumpy teenage part of your personality, right? And it was daft in 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 the sense it was emotional though because it was about twin loss. Of course, it was right. Don't do anything without sure, something sure, there. Sure. So it was about twin loss. So it was emotional, but it was it was a twin. It was a comedy about twin loss. I mean, it was a really tough sell. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um. But there was that kind of quirkiness to it that um, meant that we that he saw a side of me that I hadn't necessarily played before and that's because Tonard knows me really well and she wrote a version of amalgamation, basically, of me and her and knowing each other so well, we were kind of... Emb- Anna, the character, was a mix of us. So I think it was kind of the first time I'd ever played that close to myself.
1: Gordon Brown, Georgia. Yes. We like him. We do. He was Prime Minister of Great Britain at the time of the great financial crash of 2008. Yeah. He had to make some big decisions. Indeed he did. Uh, it's in your book, but it's also something that Sarah said to me that you you said to her on several occasions that you could do the right thing or you could do the popular thing.
8: Yeah, this is this is uh, this is what I feel about the financial crisis in two thousand and nine. I, I I do think we were doing the right thing, and I think I think history will actually prove we did the right thing. But I couldn't get my message across, so it wasn't popular, um, and and uh, I I don't quite know what I could have done about it because. If people are not listening or you can't get a, a message across. You know, in the 1930s, I use this um, analogy when I write about it. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was the president of the United States of America and he had the financial crisis. And he went out onto radio and uh, gave broadcasts at peak hour radio. Can you imagine me giving a broadcast peak hour television, coming uh, breaking into Strictly Come Dancing yeah. or The X yeah. Factor? And he was giving his broadcast about what to do during the recession. But he managed to find a way of getting across to people and explain what was happening. Because I, I kept feeling, how can I explain this to people? This is a banker's crisis. We're trying to do our best, but we've got to run a deficit to get out of this because we've got to get back to growth as quickly as possible. And I could never find a vehicle for getting my message across I mean, radio doesn't work. Television wasn't there. In a way, the social media was just starting off, but it wasn't really a great, you know, 2008, eight nine. it wasn't as strong as it mm. is now, and I felt so, so frustrated I couldn't get my message across. And I felt we were doing the right things, but they weren't
1: popular. But I still had to do the right things. And did you feel that that's often something you want had to do in government take the pop the, 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 make the right decision rather than the popular one? Well, I think uh,
8: you do. You know, obviously, to win an election, you, you've got to you've got to uh, make promises that you, you you keep and make promises that that people can 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 relate to. But sometimes, you know, we raised taxation to pay for the national health service. Yeah, people said we couldn't do it. But they said that the public will not accept a big rise in taxation to pay for the health service. But we went out of our way. It took us about two years to persuade people to do it. So you start off with what you think is right, and then you say, well. Will people, you know, feel that this is the right thing to do if you can explain it to them? And I think in the health services case, we did explain to people. And, you know, at the moment, we've got a pending crisis in our health service now. I mm. think it's not underfunded. And you've got to go out there and explain to people these are difficult decisions. But if you want a decent health service, you've got you've got to have the money coming in to be able to, to, to do it. So you start uh, by, I think, wanting to do the right thing. And if you can persuade people, but in politics, you've got to persuade people. And if you don't
1: persuade people, you're out. Mm. Here's Michael Sheen again, talking about how acting and being scared go hand in hand. Would you say that's true?
6: I wouldn't know. It's been a while.
2: Well, let's hear from Michael. Every single performance I've done of any play, I'm terrified before I go on. But presumably, you, from what you're saying, you you realise you have to be. Yeah, Otherwise I guess Otherwise you slip so back I,
1: on your sort of enjoying yourself so, so much. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. But, I'm, but I, I feel like that's out of my control in a way. I just am terrified. I, I remember working with... Um, Declan Donnellan, who uh, ran a theatre company called Cheap Agile, yeah. and I did um, a play with them fairly early on uh, after leaving drama school, and I remember him talking about the idea of um, that when you're on stage. Uh, it makes it is in itself uh, 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 such a vulnerable situation to be in. You've got people watching. You know, everyone assumes that actors are big show-offs and love the attention and all that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, I'm sure that is an aspect of it. But it's, but from my experience, it is terrifying. Yeah. If you actually take on board the reality that you have all these people watching you and you have to give this performance. It was easier when I was younger and I sort of, you know, just had the kind of ignorance, really, of, of youth and inexperience. I just kind of went out there and gave it, you know, blazing mm. guns. And as I've got older and you start to become a bit more aware of what's actually going on, it becomes really scary. Mm. Um, and uh, and I remember Declan talking about the idea that as an actor, you, as, a, as a human being, you will do whatever it takes to to protect yourself from vulnerability. If you're if if you're vulnerable, if you feel exposed, then you will do whatever you can. Your natural tendency will be to cover up that exposure. To mm-hmm. to 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 you know you, you don't want to show weakness because then you can be, you know, you can be hurt by it. And that the that the the, the pure act of being on stage is an act of vulnerability and you have to be really careful as an actor that you don't start to do things in order to, to to protect yourself from that vulnerability, because it is that very vulnerability that is compelling to an audience. That is what, mm. I mean, it's what we were just talking about, that feeling of it's not a pleasant feeling to be vulnerable, but that, you know, I've come to recognize that that is the the kind of good stuff. That's the fertile area to be in. Um, but everything you do will try and get in the way of that because it's unpleasant. Yeah. So, and and David Mamet talks about this as well about pausing actors will always want to pause there's a something inside you that well I recognize this anyway there's something inside you that goes I'm not ready to say it yet I'm not feeling I'm not feeling it yet I'm not and I remember Declan talking about this as well going if you wait until you're ready, you will never say the line mm. and there's a it's almost like that um the the yips thing that Eric Bristow apparently had the darts player where he couldn't let go of the dart that he got to a point it was like the equivalent of stage fright or whatever where he would go to throw the dart and he he couldn't let go of it. And I think it's called the yips. Yeah. And I totally recognise that as an actor as well, the idea of I'm not, I'm not emotionally in the right place to say this line. And you, and you can imagine just not being able to say the yeah. line ever. Yeah. And I think that's the tendency that actors can have to to pause a lot is because you're somehow going, I'm not quite ready. And Declan, I remember saying, forget that. You're never, it's artificial. You're pretending. It's artificial. You will never be ready. You will never be emotionally in the perfect place to say this, so just let go. And Mama, I'm sort of, I may be now saying the Declan said it, and it was actually Mama. Yes, but the but idea the, of the,
1: the principle is similar, go. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Letting
2: go. The idea of being too precious about the work, and mm. then somehow, you know, it, it, it is about totally letting go. And I've I've realised that not just about acting, but about life generally mm. is it takes such kind of bravery to to let go of stuff that matters to you. I mean, it's easy to let go of something if you don't give a shit um. – it's when something really matters to you and as whatever it is, whatever your job is, whether it's, you know, as an actor and it's, you really care about what you're doing and you've, you've built up this life and of the character and, and, it, and it's come to make connections with you and your life and it, the stakes are really high and it's all incredibly meaningful and significant and then you just have to let it go. Yeah, um, And it's the same in life, you know, like, I mean, you know, you and I have both got kids and yeah. the idea of children growing up and, and you you sort of micromanaging their life and control, and then you have to sort of let go, and and yeah. yet it's the, the thing that means the most to you in the world. How do you how do you do that? And um I've i you know I I started to realise yeah that's and and that was what Declan was talking about. I realised now you know that idea of uh everything you do will be there will be a tendency towards putting a little buffer between you and the good stuff, mm. Mm. Um, and your job as an actor in a way is to is to strip things away. I always thought it was about adding things on, you know, like Olivier with the nose and the wig and the funny walk and the hum. Um, And actually I've come to realise that it's more about stripping things away. When people talk about sculptures already existing in the block of marble and the sculptor's job is just to release it, is just to get rid of stuff to show the actual sculpture that's in there, I've come to think of acting much more like that. that, that That somehow that first time you read the script, the first time you connect with the, with the story and the character, it, it then exists inside you. Then all the work is about just stripping everything away just to allow that to come through, as opposed to building it up bit by bit as time goes on.
1: Samantha B. made a name for herself doing some very bold interviews on The Daily Show. Very bold. Asking the unaskable questions of some very powerful people. Did you ever chicken out? Did you ever get to the thing where I, I just can't, I can't, I know the question I need to ask, but I'm too scared um, right now.
9: No, I don't think so. I don't think I ever really chickened out. I think some things that, you know, there's ch- no, I never chickened out. I will say that there were times when I would pivot because often in this world, you you receive a research packet or you think that you've researched something and you've gotten all this material from the researchers and everybody feels very solid on Mm -hmm. what the sequence of events was. And you get into the interview and realize this is all wrong. It did not happen this way. This person is... This person did this thing because another thing, because there's an underlying factor that nobody took into account. And then it's just not appropriate to ask the oh, question. Oh, I see. So
1: sometimes you'd think I came here to 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 expose this truth as I'm talking to this person. I'm realizing I'm realizing this is I've not that's wrong.
9: Yes. We've oh, okay. got it wrong. And so of course in that moment I would not but I don't think that's chickening out. I just think that's being no, that's smart true. and sure. being human being. So yes, there were lots of pivots for sure. Right. But if I felt you know, if I was right and felt strongly about something, no, I never chickened out. But I was terrified all the time. Yeah. For sure. And I still, it's, it's, interviewing people is very nerve-wracking. It sure. was very nerve-wracking. I'm
1: terrified right now. You should be
9: because well, it's you're, super scary. You are
1: quite, you're quite intimidated. Really, really. But if you, especially if you're going up against pompous people, which a lot of the time is what you were doing, you're, you're yes. trying to sort of puncture Let's. those pompous balloons. For sure. Pompous people tend to be quite, Pleased with themselves, and and therefore, yes. I imagine you would experience quite, people getting quite annoyed at you.
9: People did get annoyed, did, did, but
1: did people ever get? Did you ever fear for your safety?
9: I never feared for my safety. I definitely would observe, watch people get angrier and angrier. At which point and you're thinking,
1: "This is working. Turn the gas up."
9: Yeah, or it's are you great. ever thinking, no, this "Oh, this is okay. perfect. Oh, okay. this is really good." Right, but th- I think what happened a lot of times is that. They just opened up to me more because I'm this little woman talking to them. So they felt, you know, people would people are quite arrogant about their opinions as well, even if their opinions are based on nothing. Mm. And so they just, oh, this is terrible. But they trusted me. They trusted that they could open up to me more, and they could. I always think that if someone has an opinion about something, and they're trying to change the world to accommodate their opinion about the world. Mm then they should be willing to hear that opinion projected back to them. They should be willing to... If they're yes. unhappy with how the interview turned out, it's only because the words that they were saying are repellent. Yes. And they're maybe just hearing them for the first uh, time. I mean,
1: Georgia, yes. you love a bit of Whoopi Goldberg.
6: I really do. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, Very thrilled when she agreed to come on the show. Uh, and here's a bit of her now. Have you always had a sort of sense of the world about you and a a kind of a a moral viewpoint. Is that something you've grew up with, a very, you know, a a certainty of opinion on things or?
7: Well, I mean, my mom was a person who said, you know, oh, this is what's going on in the world and we'd watch the news or Mm -hmm. something. And, you know, if I thought something about something and I'd ask and say, what does this mean or what is this? And I, you know, I have a fairly moral Sort of clock mm. that says, you know, there before the grace of God go I. Mm. So be careful, you know, where how you respond. me. you can not like something somebody says, but you don't know that person. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and when you do know that person, then you can say, well, I know that person. I don't like what they said, mm. and here's why.
1: Makes it easier. Is that something your mom taught you? Yeah. Right.
7: Yeah. That if you're going to have an opinion, the consequence of that is there are people who are not going to like it. Right. You know, so every day half the country's pissed at me, (laughs) you know, and that's okay. Yeah. Because again, it's my job to give my opinion.
1: Yeah. Cause it does get quite heated in the view between you guys, right? Yeah, does that? Do you ever continue it backstage, or are you all quite? Are you all no? Because
7: the next thing that you're talking about on any given day is, you know. Vaginal implants, sure. you know, <laughs> so yeah. we go from, you know, politics to vaginal implants yeah. to whose relationship is what to, you know, how to have a, a halfway decent orgasm without screaming, uh-huh. you know, that we're talking about, <laughs> you know, the wildest, craziest stuff. So, you know, um, it's never personal. Uh-huh. And the minute it gets personal, you nip that in the bud. Yeah. And you say, hey, is that what you mean? Because... That's what it sounds like. So you're all quite
1: like. good at keeping that kind of housekeeping between yourself. Yeah, you have to.
7: Yeah, You sure. have to because, you know, you are on one hand you have a media and a social media uh, that goes berserk. It's, oh, they hate each other and this one hates this one. It's like, you're not here. You have yeah. no idea what's going on here. Yeah. You know, and it seems to be only women that they do this with. They don't seem to do it with men. Oh, right. You know, five guys, you know, having a, you know, well, they're all opinionated. Isn't that great? Mm. With women, it's like, ah, those bitches. Right. You know, it's like, "Mm," it's kind of like a little limited in thinking, but Uh okay.
1: You know. Why do you think that is? Why do you think women get a tougher time about that? What, what what do we not what do we not like as a society about women disagreeing with each other?
7: Well, I I think it's it's more we've seen a lot of movies and television shows where, you know, women are you know women are talking to each other and suddenly you have a bunch of chickens crying, <laughs> yeah. you know, or you get that that vibe that uh, if you get passionate, that you're just You know, you just need to calm down. It's Uh like, um, no, I'm just, we're passionate. Oh, you're getting hysterical. You know, they love to say women are hysterical. Mm. Well, sometimes, but men are hysterical as well. Yes, it's not something that's ascribed to men, is it hysterical? No, no, it's never. And I, I don't, I'm not sure why that is, but I know that it's probably... Thousands of years mm. of this, mm. you know, where they said this is what women are and this is what men are. But, mm. you know, this is 2019 and yeah. men and women are really interesting and fluid and, you know, you just never know what you're going to get. So you have to take everybody on an individual basis, I think. Mm. Well, this is my
1: hope. Yeah. You know. Well, that's all for now. Thank you to all the guests who have been so honest, so funny and so open. Thanks to you, Georgia.
3: You're very welcome. And
1: thanks to everyone out there for listening. It's been a pleasure. See you next time.
3: Should I interview you now?
1: David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced and edited by James Deacon. Additional production from Chris Skinner, Steve Ackerman, Sarah Camlet, Josh Gibbs, Dave King, Joel Freeman and Georgia Tennant.
2: Also from Something Else.
9: The Bugle presents The Last Post, a daily satirical dive into a universe just like our own, with Alice Fraser and guest appearances from Andy Zaltzman, Nish Kumar and many more.
4: There there will be further discussions on a vote uh, about whether we strap rockets to the bottom of England (laughs) and launch it into space. And there will be people, (laughs) Alice, who say things like, I don't think we should launch England into space.
3: Yeah, they would say And to those people
4: I say, you are talking the country down. And you should be talking it up into
6: space. Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps.